Welcome to the Lex City Church Podcast. To learn more about the ministries of Lex City, please visit LexCity.Church. Well, I hope you got your running shoes on today because we've got a lot of ground we're going to cover. We're going to try to get from Revelations 12 to Revelations 20. We're going to do the seven bulls, the mark of the beast, and the battle of Armageddon. So uh, good luck Woo! as we go. I hope you're ready today. So let me just get you caught up from where we are as we start this part two of the series. If you look back on our timeline... We talked about this in our first section again, that the church age here, the rapture of the church, uh, the beginning of the things that we'll get to experience in heaven, the seven-year tribulation period begins when the Antichrist signs a covenant with the nation of Israel of peace halfway through this. He breaks the covenant, starts the last three and a half years of the tribulation period. Last Sunday, we talked a little bit about some of the things that happened, that the war that raged the war that happened in the part of the tribulation. Today, we're going to end the seven-year tribulation. We're going to have the second coming of the Lord, and we're going to have the battle of Armageddon, and we're going to get it done here in just a few minutes. So uh, get ready. Here we go. Let's jump in today. Last week, we started Revelations chapter 12, and we saw God's redemptive plan for the world that came through a woman and a child who defeated a red dragon right? That Jesus Christ was born through the line of the nation of Israel, and Jesus' work on the cross defeated Satan. And when Satan realized that he was defeated from that plan that he had to overcome God and overthrow God, he then turns his wrath and his anger towards the people of God in the nation of Israel. Chapter 13, as we move on, that wrath now is introduced through two agents that Satan uses to bring wrath to mankind. So let's pick it up this morning. Revelations chapter 13, verse 1. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads and with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard and his feet were like a bear's and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against us? If you were here for the first part of our series, you remember one of the weeks we talked a little bit about this Antichrist. Who is the Antichrist? And we know that it's going to be the beast that's rising out of the sea is what we know as the Antichrist. Now make special note in this section, where does the Antichrist get his power? It's from what? The dragon, right? And who is the dragon? Satan, if you remember, we studied that last. So the Antichrist is gonna get his power and authority from Satan, and his goal is he's going to set up a one-world government at this time. 1 John chapter 2, verse 8 gives us a little more insight. It says, children, it is in the last hour, and you have heard that Antichrist is coming. So how many antichrists have come? Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. Notice this, that there's going to be, it says throughout human history, several lower A, lowercase antichrists who show up. The Bible says that they have the spirit of the capital A antichrist, but they're not actually the antichrist. But all throughout history, we're going to see uh, men in authority who have the spirit of the antichrist, world leaders that come around. In John's day... As he was reading this and his readers, they assumed that this Antichrist was actually Nero, Nero Caesar, that at the time. And Nero Caesar, his name in Hebrew, and we'll talk about this in just a moment, actually the the numerology works up to the number 666. So they thought this was Nero, that was probably the Antichrist. 
Now that makes logical sense because Nero hated Christians and he hated the church. And history shares that Nero actually took Christians while they were alive, dipped them in tar, and then lit them in, on fire and hung them as lanterns for his garden as he made his walks in the evenings. So it'd be no wonder people would look and say, this has got to be the Antichrist that's here. Well, he wasn't. 1930s, many felt that Hitler, his hatred towards the Jews, obviously Hitler must be the Antichrist. And many would say Mussolini was the false prophet that we're gonna see. But again, that wasn't the case. This false prophet is the second instrument or the second thing that Satan's gonna use to bring wrath on the earth. He's gonna use the Antichrist to develop one world government, but also the false prophet. Look at verse 11. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. And then it has two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all authority of its first beast, and his presence makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast, who is the Antichrist, right? They worship him, whose mortal wounds have been healed. It performed great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on the earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it, allowed to, it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who not worship the image of the beast to be slain if they didn't. Here's what really just The second great goal of the false prophet is to unite the world around worship of the beast or worship around this antichrist. So the antichrist is creating a one world government the false prophet is creating a one-world religion, and he does this by deceiving people through counterfeit signs and wonders. When we studied the, the Antichrist in the first part of that series, you remember, the Bible seems to reference that somehow he receives a mortal wound in his head, appears to be dead, and then the false prophet appears to raise him from the dead. And when he does that, people are deceived, thinking this man must be like a God, or he must be God. How could he possibly bring somebody back from the dead? And so the false prophet performs these signs and wonders and even says that he calls fire down from heaven and the people look at these miraculous signs and say, wow. Let me just take a, a moment, if we can, and let's talk just a little bit about this reality of sometimes of counterfeit signs and wonders. In this day and age of social media, it seems to be certainly on an increase or we certainly seem to have more coverage of these signs and wonders sometimes that we see all around the world and different things. Can I just remind you, the book of Mark says, men and women, let us discern carefully. Mark chapter 13 says this, and then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christ and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard, I have told you all things beforehand. As the time of the Lord's return draws closer, it says this, that there are going to be more counterfeit signs and wonders. Just because somebody calls himself a pastor, or just because he worships in a building they call a church, can I just remind you, their power doesn't necessarily always come from the Lord. False prophets can call fire down from heaven the same way Elijah called fire down from heaven, but their power doesn't come from the Lord. The power comes from, the Bible says, from Satan himself. So how do we tell, right? How do we tell who is a false prophet if their signs and wonders look the same as those who follow Christ, right? If fire from heaven looks the same from the false prophet as it did from Elijah, how can we tell the difference between these two? 
Well, the Bible tells us, listen. It says, 1 Timothy chapter 3 says, tells us to examine the fruit of their lives, and 2 Timothy chapter 2 tells us to examine their teaching. If a person does not walk the truth, or if a person does not teach the truth, then their miracles and their signs and wonders, the power may not come from the Lord, is what it says. So be discerning. So be discerning, right? If the Bible isn't central to their teaching, and if their character does not trump their charisma, then he simply says, be on guard. Be discerning in those things. In the Bible days, we saw this, especially in the, during the time of the apostles, right? They would perform signs and miracles, and it would validate their teaching. So we would come to a point, and they would do signs and wonders, and people would say, wow, if you're doing these miraculous things by the power of God, then the words you speak must be of God, right? We see all throughout the Bible. Then we got the scriptures, the Bible, the complete scriptures. Now it kind of flips. Now the scriptures are the word of God validate the messenger rather than the messenger validating the words. The word of God says now we can discern. We can discern the lives they live and we can discern if they're preaching from the word or just preaching their own thoughts and opinions on different things. So again, it changes there. So my encouragement simply to you today is, it, is just to be wise. All manifestations are not from God. So be discerning. And as the days grow closer to the time of the return of the Lord, these will increase. So here we pick up. We're in chapter 13 now. We've got one world government. We've got a one world religion. And the satanic movement that's happening now is mandating that the entire world fall into alignment with this one world government and this one world religion through taking the mark of the beast. Go on to verse 16. Also, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or on the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, that is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who understands calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. So whether you are a church-going person or a non-church-going folks, everybody kind of has some idea of this idea of the number 666, right? The, the number of the beast. We have some context of that. In the ancient world, uh, letters in the alphabet were used for numbers in both the Greek and the Hebrews. So you can imagine if, if uh, letters were used for numbers, there's been all kinds of intrigue of trying to unravel the mystery, right, of who is the 666, the the Antichrist that's there, right? So we begin to think on these things. So this number 666, it's really, since man was created on the sixth day, six is the number of man. Seven is the number of perfection or completeness, but six is the number of man falling just short of the number of perfection or completeness. So when John's actually saying the number 666, it's just saying three times, you fell short, you fell short, you fell short of perfection that's there. It's kind of a wonderful thing. So people have been trying to figure out who is this Antichrist based on the numbers, if the numbers equal letters. Well, in John's time, Nero, Nero Caesar, could be converted in numerology. His name can be converted to, guess what? 666. And many felt, obviously, Nero is the Antichrist because just what I shared earlier, he hated Christians, persecuted the church. He must be the Antichrist. Well, he wasn't. Uh, my favorite president, Ronald Wilson Reagan, has six letters in each of his names. Six. Six, six. Uh, if you take 2020 and divide it by the number uh, that Biden used for his campaign text number, 
it equals point six. Six, six, you can't make this stuff up as we go, all right? Uh, some of you are old enough, you remember when, remember when we got credit cards and they had a hologram on it? We're like, whoo, can't use this card. Uh, Dave Ramsey witness and Mark of the Beast that's on there, right? And then we got barcodes and then we knew the end was coming. Once barcodes came out, the Mark of the Beast must be there. Uh, that was coming clue. Uh, now we have, you know, we're getting a vaccination and I'm sure there's something deeper going on with all that. And so we have all of these things over and over. A literal, how do we figure out who the Mark of the Beast is? Some would interpret this passage to view that it's not a literal number 666 that would be on your forehead and on your arm, but it's more, it's a description rather of one's devotion. And the idea of this is, is that if it was written on the forehead and hand, it's really a reference to the Jewish tefillin. And if you're familiar with that, is that's that little black leather box and uh, the wrap they would put during uh, times of prayer. And in that would have verses from the Torah. They'd put it on their head and on their forearm showing their devotion. And so they would say, listen, the mark of the beast isn't actually going to be a literal number of forehead or wrist. It's going to be more of, a, of an indication of one's devotion, that you are devoted to the beast rather than devoted to the Lord. Two ideas on that. But I think as you look at this, the idea that we're not gonna be able to buy or sell, right, without having this physical number or mark, I think um, gives indication in my mind and a little bit of idea that this is probably some kind of a physical indication, that there's something physical about taking the mark of the beast. And uh, this concept of this isn't really hard for us to imagine today, but think back even 75 years ago. I mean, this would be science fiction. Like, how could you ever create something that people couldn't buy or sell uh, because we would just get it from different places in the market? But think about even today. I mean, in our sim, a simple vaccine card prevented you from entering or exiting or doing certain things. You lost freedoms just over that. Our phones have everything about us. In many places, we scan just to go right. My, my point is simply this. The technology for this idea that we could never buy or sell without some type of marker indication isn't beyond us. I mean, that's in our lifetime right now that we have. But we're gonna see this, because my fear is, oh, so if I have I taken the mark and not knowing about it, here's my thought. In the next chapter, we're gonna see this, that judgment comes upon those who have taken the mark. So I think it's gonna be a conscious decision to move your devotion or to, the, to the enemy or to Satan himself. I think you're gonna know what you're doing. It's not gonna be a deceptive thing that we kind of just slide into and have no idea. It's not gonna be like, oh, I had a hologram on my credit card or I downloaded this TikTok app and uh, this thing came, right? I think it's gonna be this sense that man is willingly going to reject God and he's gonna take the mark of, of the beast. So it won't be something I will slide into not knowing. I think you're gonna make a conscious choice because judgment falls upon you because of that choice, if that makes sense. So we move on to chapter 14, and we gotta keep going. And at this point, half the world's population has been killed through, through judgments, through bulls, through seals, through war. That's nearly four billion people have been killed during this time of that tribulation. And the judgments have been harsh and swift, but here's what I love about this, is we're gonna continue to see the mercy of God because God continues to give people an opportunity, a chance to humble themselves, to repent, to turn to him and be saved. And again, as I say that, be reminded again, in my opinion, that the purpose of the tribulation is not for the vengeance of God upon this world. The purpose of the tribulation is to give man and give people one more chance to choose God and be saved. God's saying, listen, I'm gonna make this as dramatic. I'm gonna get your attention. It's an opportunity for you to be saved. So he sends, we're gonna see in chapter 14, 
three angels, and three angels give three clear messages of this is what's gonna happen. So let's look at the first one. Chapter 14, verse six. And then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth and to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of the water. In chapter 14, we have this amazing thing that's happening. I don't know exactly how this is, but somehow the angel hovers above the earth proclaiming to the gospel to every nation, to every tribe, to every tongue. And God in this moment continues to give people opportunity so they're without excuse. This is my love for you. I desire for you to humble yourself, to repent, to turn from me, and to be saved. And I would imagine in those moments, many people in Revelation 14 come to a saving knowledge of Jesus. I think we'll see hundreds and thousands place their faith in Christ. But then God sends two other angels to continue to make it very clear what's happening. Two other angels clearly proclaiming the result of rejecting God and worshiping the beast. Go to verse eight. And another angel, a second, followed saying, fallen, fallen is Babylon, the great. She who made all nations drink the wine of passion, her sexual immorality. And then a third angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead and on his hand, he also will drink from the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. And they have no rest, day or night. These worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. He says, man, it's abundantly clear. You, you've got a choice. It's heaven or hell, right? It's God or, or Satan. You're either going to repent or you're going to rebel against God. And we know how this is, right? When adversity hits, we, we either run to God or we respond to God with anger. You, you've experienced it either in your own life and certainly with people that you know and you love dearly, right? Struggles have come. Tragedy enters our life. Loss, adversity. And in those moments, they're either leaning into God in a new and a fresh way or they're turning against God with anger and blaspheming him and push him away to a father. This is the world. The world that's known, Revelation 14, is once again choosing. And we see the world pushing God away and blaspheming his name in anger and rebellion. That's chapter 14. Chapter 15 gives us a preview of seven angels that are gonna lay out seven last judgments upon the world. And the end times are coming to a close. We see it in Revelation chapter 15, verse one. Then I saw another sign in heaven and great and amazing seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last. For with them, the wrath of God is finished. So chapter 15, he says, listen, this thing is about over. We've got that little timeline. We're at the end of the tribulation, seven angels, seven last things. Chapter 16 tells us what those seven bowls are. Bowl number one is an ugly and painful sores that break out on all who have the mark of the beast. That's why I go back to, I think you're gonna be cognizant. We won't need to worry about it. We'll be raptured and gone. But for those Christians who are here on this earth, they will make a choice. They won't be deceived in this. They'll either choose God, choose the beast, judgment comes. Bowl number two, seas turn into blood. Every living thing in the sea dies. It's all the salt water. Bowl number three, the rivers and streams become blood. Drinking water is polluted. Now all the fresh water is polluted. Verse, uh, bowl number four, people are scorched. Scorched with an intense heat of the sun. Bowl number five, darkness covers the kingdom of the beast. Bowl number six, the Euphrates River dries up 
demons enticed the kings of the east to wage war against Israel in the valley of Megiddo or the valley of Armageddon. I wanna take just a moment and talk about that uh, bold number six because it really begins to set the stage, bold number six for this final battle, the greatest battle ever held here on earth. One of the longest rivers in the world, you'll see here on the map, is the Euphrates River that, that runs here. And it's a natural barrier from the, from the uh, nations from the east and the kingdoms in the east that protects Jerusalem or the holy city during this time. And so with this sixth bowl that comes is this Euphrates River is going to be dried up, which is gonna create easy access for the kingdoms of the east to enter into Jerusalem for this battle. Kingdoms of the east, you look, Modern day, it's modern day, Russia to the top, Iran to there, China, all these things now will begin to have easy access to that. Leads us to that final battle, the Battle of Armageddon. Now it's interesting that that name, the Battle of Armageddon, uh, it's actually not a phrase that appears anywhere in the Bible. The, the name Armageddon comes from two Hebrew words and it's Har Megiddo. The hill of Megiddo is what it really means. And the word Megiddo means this, place of troops or place of slaughter. You would think sometimes people, if they knew the names, they might want to avoid this place, but this is where they all rally. You'll see a picture of it here up on the screen. This area is about 14 miles wide and 20 miles long, and it forms what Napoleon says was the most natural battlefield on the whole earth. And you'll see that little gray mound that's here on the top of this picture. This is not a natural mound that was formed. This is actually 26 layers of fortresses that have been built and conquered throughout human history that were on these plains. This all started with King Solomon, the Egyptians, the Assyrians, the Greeks, the Romans, the Crusaders. Napoleon had armies that fought on this valley. World War II, there were skirmishes that were there. Arab-Israeli War of 1948, places were fought right here on the plains that were there. These plains are also are the places in the Bible where King Saul and his two sons were killed in battle. It's also the place where King Josiah was killed. I'm telling you, history just reinforces what the Bible says over and over. These are the plains where their armies will rally. So Revelation chapter 16, let me just read it for you. And the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air. And a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, It is done. And there was a flash of lightning, rumblings, pearls of thunder, and great earthquakes, such as there has never been seen from man on this earth. So great was the earthquake. The great city was split into three parts. The cities of the nations fell. And God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of wine of fury of his wrath. And every island fled away and no mountains were to be found. Great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on the people. And they cursed God for the plague of the hail because the plague was so severe. This is the seventh seal that God says this is it and it's finished. Seven seals, severe earthquake, splits Jerusalem into three parts. The topography of the entire earth is forever changed and 100 pound hailstones fall upon his people. That may sound slightly familiar with you. I think it's uh, the same judgment that we see in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 37 and 38. You can look there, it gives you some more details. But think about this, the topography of the entire world in the seventh bowl is forever changed. Mountains collapse, seas begin to rise. Jerusalem is split in three by the earthquake that's there. Hailstorms the size of bowling balls weighing 100 pounds begin to crush the earth. And you would think when you saw and experienced all of this calamity, maybe this would bring you to a point of humility. And maybe this would cause you to cry out to God with repentance, but that is not at all what happens. We see again the people begin to curse God 
for the things that he's brought. Ends the bulls. Now we move on to the battle. Armies have begun to rally in the, in the valley of Megiddo. Let's go to Revelation chapter 17. We're making great time. And then verse 12, then the 10 horns that you saw are 10 kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. These are of one mind, and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. Who's the beast again? Antichrist, right? And they will make war on the lamb, and the lamb will conquer them, for he is the Lord of lords and the king of kings, and those with him are called and chosen and faithful. So we see this in this last part. It's the ten, the ten horns, or the ten kings of this world, rally together, give their allegiance to the beast. They're preparing for the battle. But look who also, then we have the counter. Look who is with the lambs. What does it say? We, the chosen, will be with Jesus at that final battle. The Bible says this, when Jesus returns to the earth, listen, we'll return with him on great white horses. I'm going to ask for an exception because I'd like to ride Justify into this final battle. So you'll be on a beautiful white horse. I'm hoping to be on Justify as we go, all right? So Joel chapter 3 verse 2 tells us now where all these armies will rally to. He says, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. And I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my heritage Israel. Because they have scattered them among the nations and had divided up my lands. And so the armies, when I say the Battle of Armageddon, it actually doesn't happen there. They rally, they meet in the valley, and now they move down to the valley of Jehoshaphat that's there. And the Kindred Valley that's right there outside of the city of Jerusalem, it's known as the Valley of Decision, the place of judgment. You think again, if you knew the name, you might want to avoid it, but this is where they all come. Now listen, if you've ever been to the Holy Lands, uh, you have seen these very sites, and you've sat uh, right there across from the Mount of Olives, you've looked over the Kidron Valley into the city of Jerusalem. The power of the Holy Lands is not only that you get to walk where Jesus has walked, but you actually get to sit and see the very things where all of this will come to an end. A little side note, Israel has finally opened up for visitors to come, so Tammy and I are going to take another group uh, this January, if you're at all interested in going. After service, come down and, and talk with her. But it's just this chance to go and see these exact places where history talks about and the scripture tells us all about them. So Satan and his armies are poised to, to conquer the holy city. They're sitting just outside of the walls. All things are in place. And then Revelations 19, as we keep moving on, begins to happen. The Lord returns. And you'll see the picture there, however you visualize that. But this is what Revelations 19 says. Then I saw heaven open and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it was called Faithful and True. And in his righteousness, he judges and he makes wars. His eyes are like the flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the enemies of, of heaven array in fine, or the armies of heaven, they array in fine linen, white and pure. We're following him on white horses. That's us. We get to be a part of this amazing thing. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword in which to strike down the nations. And he will rule with them, over them with a rod of iron. And he will tread the wine presses of his fury and the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has named the name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Again, it's called the Battle of Armageddon, but let's be honest, there's really no battle that takes place. I mean, God's judgment comes down. When the Lord returns, he destroys the armies of the world, and they have no attack and literally no counterattack to the mighty power of God. We go on to verse 19. 
And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. Verse 20. And the beast was captured and with it the false prophet who in its presence was done the signs by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshiped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. We end this part of the, the, the chapter, right? The two agents that Satan has used to bring wrath against the world, that the Antichrist and the false prophet, that they're throwing into the lake of fire. And God calls the birds of the air to say, just come down, this is buffet time. Just gorge yourself on the carnage that lies before. And the enemies of the Lord, the armies of this world, lay at waste. And the holy city, Jerusalem, and the people of God are saved at the end of this great war. And you and I, we're just sitting on our horses, cheering, worshiping, because the King of kings and Lord of lords has made all what was wrong has been right. And the King of kings and the Lord of lords came down and saved his people and his holy city at their time of greatest need when all rallied against. And we are gonna have a front row seat to this very thing. And to worship the Lord in that. And so chapter 19 ends with this great victory and then sets up for us what we'll call the millennial reign, the thousand years of reign, but that's what we're gonna talk about next week. Whew, we did it. Chapters 12, all the way through 19 as we go. So these are all things that happen in the future, right? During the tribulation. And again, whether you're at this point, whether you believe a pre-trib, a mid-trib, or post, we're all kind of together at this point. God's taking care of us. Is there anything that applies to us today, right? If we believe we'll be in, in heaven during these difficult times. I want to encourage you. Revelation chapter 16 tells us today how we should posture ourselves in re in response to what we're about to experience and see through the tribulation. Go back to Revelation chapter 16, verse 15. I'll just put it on the screen. And it says this. Look, I will come as unexpectedly as a thief. Blessed are all who watch for me, who keep their clothing ready, so they will not have to walk around naked and ashamed. The Lord says, listen, I'm gonna return someday like a thief in a night when it's unexpected. We talk about this, the the imminent return of the Lord. We really believe that the Lord could return at any time. So he says, listen, I, I need you to be watching. I, I need you to live expectantly. I need you to clothe yourselves in the things of God, in righteousness, in godliness, in purity, and in holiness. Because if you don't clothe yourself this way, on the moment when I return like a thief in the night, you will be naked and you will be ashamed because you weren't expecting, you weren't anticipating my return. The application for us, pretty straightforward today. Listen, if you need the Lord is going to return in three months, are there things in your life you need to make right with God? Are there things where you've clothed yourselves in things that are far less than godly and holiness and purity and kindness? What changes do you need to make? If you need the Lord is going to return in three months, are there people in your life you just need to have a, a boldness, a, a burden to say, I... I I need to share the love of Christ with you. I need to share with you how you can escape all these things to come and experience salvation through who God is and the difference that Jesus has made in your life. Is there somebody that you need to share? That's in three months. But listen, we're not promised three months, right? We've been talking this whole time. We're promised this moment and this time. 
So the question really is, in light of those things, Revelation 16 says, blessed are those people who live with this in mind. Blessed are those who walk daily with God with kindness and holiness and purity. So on the day that the Lord comes and the trumpet sounds and in a twinkling of an eye, we're in the presence of the Lord. We don't come as those who are naked and ashamed. We come as those who are expectant and excited and living with eternity in mind. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for just the, the powerful truth of the book of Revelations. I pray that your spirit would give us understanding, clarity. God, the things that even we shared today that are a truth of you, that they would resonate in our hearts and the other things would quickly fade away. But God, in all of these things, May we be reminded of two things. Number one, that you're a loving God who so desires for all to come to a point of repentance and relationship. And even in the midst of these horrific world events that are happening and the judgments that come upon the world, you take time to pause, to have the gospel proclaimed so that many may choose to be saved. So God, even today, that's your heart for us. There may be some here today who are here or listening even online who would say, I, I'm honest, I'm a little like those who have just rebelled against God, maybe even blasphemed God. I've gone my own way and the struggles of life have caused me just to become bitter and angry and hardened. Lord, maybe even today would be the day that as your spirit would soften their hearts, that they would respond. God, for many of us who have made that decision, may today just be the reminder that we need to live as men and women who are watchful, who are expectant, who don't live with the promise of tomorrow, but live within this moment to, to know you, to love you, and to share the goodness of who you are with others. So God created us that eternal perspective that makes a difference how we live Monday morning. God, we thank you. We love you. We thank you that you are in control of all things. We thank you at the end of the day, when all seems lost, that you will part the skies and make all wrongs right. And we worship you for that. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Whew. Well, you did it. I'm impressed. We got theirs to go. Hey, next year, clap for yourself. You're good. Next week, we're going to talk about the millennial reign, this thousand years, and what that looks like. It's incredible. But then we're going to talk about the great white seat throne judgment, where your name is found in the book of life and all that means. So that'll be next week. Hey, let me remind you two things as we close out. Uh, remind you, Easter's coming again, and no great revival or movement of God happens without prayer or yard signs. And so yard signs will be out there. Feel free to grab one of those. Uh, also, if you're new, my wife Tammy and I haven't got a chance to meet you, we'll be out in the Welcome Center. Or if you'd like to hear a little bit more about that Israel trip, we'll be out there also. Have a wonderful week. We'll look forward to seeing you back next Sunday. We'll see you then. Thank you for listening to the Lex City Church podcast. If you would like to support ministries of Lex City, visit lexcity.church/give. Please subscribe and follow us on social media at Lex City Church for more encouraging teachings and content.